What happens when your worst fear becomes your reality? Hi, I'm Brent Cassidy. Welcome to the Nightmare Success In and Out podcast, where we explore how to overcome your fears and nightmares and set yourself free. We're going to be exploring this topic with guys that was in Leavenworth with and others who survived their own nightmare. These stories can be inspiring, sometimes sad. There's some humor, but hopefully you can come away with a nugget of something that'll help you knock down some of the prisons you built up in your own mind. All right, folks, welcome back. Nightmare success in and out listeners. You know, this is where you come to hear about, you know, what happens when your worst fear becomes your reality? How do you adapt, survive, overcome? Well, I've got that type of guest today. I've got him. His name's Craig Stanfield. He, uh, he's known as the reinvention architect, mindset coach. Uh, he's, he's done a TEDx talk that I just talked to him about. It's such a cool deal. If, you, if you're into TED Talks at all, uh, go and check it out. I listened to it yesterday. I liked it so much, I took it home to my wife and had her listen to it. It's just a powerful, powerful speech. He's a keynote speaker. He's a best-selling author. Um, just a quick thing on Craig. Um, in 2012, Craig Stanley made a choice that would cost him everything. He uh, exploited a warranty policy of one of the largest tech companies in the world for almost a year. And then the FBI came knocking on the door. He did a two-year sentence. He hit rock bottom, and he found his passion. And I can't wait to get on all this because it's such a great story, and he's, he's, a, uh, he's a motivational guy. You, if you sit and listen to him just for a little bit, you feel like you need to get up and do something. So I want to talk about our sponsor for the show, Auto Plaza Direct. You know, who likes going and spending a couple of weeks walking the car lots looking for a car? Who likes that? Then you spend like four or five hours in the dealership to buy a car. It's kind of like a trip to the dentist. Well, there's a better way to take away all the pain and hassle of getting a car. It's called Auto Plaza Direct. They are your personal car concierge. Just tell them the car you want. What you can pay, and they will go and find that car for you. They'll negotiate your best price, and they'll deliver that car to you. They also offer warranties and financing. It's all full service. Go to autoplazadirect.com to get started with your personal car concierge. The new hassle-free way, the car buying experience you deserve, Autoplaz Direct. Tell them that Brent from Nightmare Success sent you. Craig Stanlin, welcome in, my man. How are you? How are you? Uh, I am doing really well. So excited for our conversation. You and I have spoken before. We spoke a few minutes, you know, before we're, we hit record. Um, I, I know we're going to have a really good conversation. And I thank do. you for that great intro. <laughs> well, I mean, you, and when did you get out? I mean, you haven't been out that long. So I got out. I was done with the halfway house May 9th, 2016, off of supervised release, May 9th, 2019. You have hit the ground running since you've been out. You, I mean, you've done a lot of things, helping a lot of people. And, you know, I, what I love about this podcast is, is finding people who, are, who really take their journey and instead of, you know, crawling up in a fetal position and giving up, you, and you tell a really good story, and we'll get into that, about your rock bottom moment and how you really found yourself and, and what you're doing now is just an outshoot of that and, and how you continue to, to grow that. Take us back a little bit, Craig. Have you always been this motivated? Were you just a motivated kid? I mean, were you taken on the world at five, six years old? What was going on back then? I would say no. <laughs> I would say no. I would say that I was an extremely creative 
child. I loved my creativity. I loved to write. I loved to draw. I loved creating these different worlds in my mind. Um, You know, like the Chronicles of Narnia, um, the Goonies, Raiders of the Lost Ark. That was all in my wheelhouse. And I loved that sense of adventure. And I would say that I was always fairly entrepreneurial, um, but I wasn't as motivated as I am now. It was, you know what it was? It was really that five, six years old, you know, you have still that a little bit of the freedom of the child's mind. Sure. Where, you know, the shoulds and the expectations and the opinions and the fear of judgments from others haven't really kicked in. That's you right. can you can dive into those fun, you know, realms of the imagination and those, you know, those worlds. As I started getting older, then it became a little bit of, you know, well, you can't make money writing. You know, <laughs> who are you? Who are you going to, you know, you got to get an office job. You've got to do all of these things. You got to follow the blueprint. Sure. Did your parents you know? come so, from a entrepreneurial background? Like what were, what was going on in, in that, that household? I would say... My father is one of the brightest men I've ever known. Um, I mean, it's just ridiculous. Man can like calculate the distance between planets with a pencil on a piece of paper. I mean, it's just <laughs> like, smart. <laughs> it's, it's disgusting. It's annoying. Um, but he was, I wouldn't say entrepreneurial, but he took, because he's older, he's in his, you know, eighties now. So yeah. you kind of think about when he was growing up, mm-hmm. that was, you know, go to school, get good grades get that solid job. He worked for the same company, uh, I believe for 48 years. Wow. You know, that's, all, I mean, that's he almost unheard in, of anymore. I mean, that so many that, people bounce that, around. Yeah. That doesn't even happen anymore. No. So he didn't, I would say he, he also very creative, um, individual, but didn't have that entrepreneurial thing because when he was growing up, I think if you were to do that, you were considered somewhat nuts. Yeah. Yeah, right. You know, go work for one of the top 10 companies. Yeah. And, you know, you're going to be good, success. get your pension, yep. Yep, get your 401k. Uh, so that was my dad and my mom. Um, definitely not entrepreneurial, you know, very creative in her own way, mm-hmm. you know, in the kitchen and, you know, helping out with the Boy Scouts and the Cub Scouts and things like that. And, you know, putting together those meetings, but not entrepreneurial. I did you know, I don't know where that actually, where some of that drive <laughs> did come from, but I was mowing, I was mowing lawns at 11. Well, that's entrepreneurial. And that probably, yeah. yeah, that actually came from, in a sense, that did come from my dad. It was like, you got to work, work, work. You so, know, there was definitely that mentality of. Were you, you an work. only child, Craig, or did you have siblings? Older sister. Older, older sister, sister who is six years older than I am. Okay. That's quite a bit older in those days. I mean, being a kid. Right. Yeah. You're six. She's 12. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. She was really cool. She introduced me to, you know, Pink Floyd and Kiss and Queen cool and, and Fruit Loops. Yeah. yeah, all the cool stuff. <laughs> so your high school years, what what was normal growing up high school I would, times? I would think, you know, I would think, I would say that it was normal, but it's also what is exactly normal me. True. It's, it's what I grew up with and, you know, all of my friends were doing the same thing. So it was all normal for us. Sure. To somebody looking on the outside, maybe it was a little bit different, but we were, uh, the group of friends that I hung out with, we were savages. I mean, we went out and partied like absolute rock stars. Yeah. I mean, just massive keg parties. We would, you know, honestly, we would get up. Think about this for a teenager. Um, we would get up at like, what time would we get up? 4.35 a.m. 
just to meet at somebody's house so we could get drunk before school. Wow. Wow. That's, that's organization right there. Real discipline. <laughs> Maybe that's some of that little bit of that go-getter you were talking right. about. I had more of it than I realized. But, you know, we were, we were risk takers. We were drinkers. We were partiers. Um, you know, when I was young, I was very in tune with school and trying to get the, the best grades that I could, you know, studying really hard. And you're going to go somewhere that's probably going to inform some of the later decisions Mm -hmm. and what we're going to dive into, you know, but I started realizing, so I bring home, let's say a 97 on a test, 98, 99, you know, really good scores, right? Mm -hmm. Um, My father would inevitably take that test and he would find the one question that I got wrong. And he would say, why did you get this wrong? Wow. That was a careless mistake. That was a stupid mistake. I know you know the answer to this. And my child brain, you know, I think that started around the age of seven-ish or so, that childhood brain started hearing. And I know my father never said this, but it's like, you're stupid. And, you know, you know better. And your best is not good. And I started really realizing if I was putting my, my best into that test and I was falling short of my father's expectations, then my best is never going to be good enough. Therefore, I'm not good enough. Never measure up. You know, yeah. Never, never going to measure up, never going to be worthy, never going to be enough. Mm-hmm. And that is something, quite frankly, and I think it's why I'm able to help my clients now. Mm-hmm. It's something I still struggle with. Yeah. yeah. You know, it really set a tone. I think it's so interesting how these beliefs can be formed mm-hmm. and how they become truths until we actually uncover them and dig into what they are. So that was a huge part of my childhood. And I bring that up because, you know, like I said, up until about seven, um, you know, or starting at seven, you know, getting that negative feedback from my father. Well, eventually when I kind of got to high school, even a little bit before that, more like middle school, I said, F it, I'm not working that hard anymore because if my best is never going to be good enough, why am I going to put myself out there and fall short over and over and over again? I'm not going to do that. So I ended up cheating on a lot of tests because I'm not an idiot. I still want to bring home a decent score, but I'm not going to invest myself in that work. So cheating gave me an out. So let's, let's progress past, because you had tremendous success. So, but you felt somewhat like an imposter syndrome. I'm thinking I'm hearing, uh, how did how did the things progress for you getting into the you know adult world college and beyond? So college, I ended up failing out actually, you know, um, because I was not willing to. I still wasn't willing to put in the work because I didn't want to fall short of my father's expectation. Yeah. And the penalty for cheating in college is so severe that I wasn't willing to do that. So I just didn't do the work, and I failed out after my first year at the University of Delaware. And so I, which isn't a common for freshmen, by the way. I mean, some people get to college; it's the first time on their own. They've got all this social stuff going on, and the thing that falls in the background is actually going to classes. Yeah, it was. Well, the funny thing was, I was used to being on my own when I was a kid. My parents were going through a divorce, so um, starting at about the age of thirteen, my father would call home and say, "Is your mother coming home to cook you dinner?" And I learned real quick. clever little kid 
I'd say, yes, she is. My mom would call home and say, is your dad coming home to cook you dinner? I'd say, yes, he is. So I knew they would both stay out. So I had the house to myself. So I've, got this really, I've got this really big home on a private road on a golf course, you know, <laughs> to myself. So I could drink. I could have friends over and hang out. I knew what time they'd come home. It was easy peasy. So going to school, going to college was almost limiting to me. Yeah, yeah. You know, but I, I just wasn't willing to put in that work because I didn't want to fall short of his expectations. So I fail um, out of college and I was doing landscaping at the time. And, you know, for the listeners, I'm not a, um, I'm not a large individual. I'm five, four, you know, at the time I weighed probably 115 pounds, but I'm wickedly strong. I was a competitive power lifter. I was ranked third in the country. I had New York state records, Delaware state records, Jersey state records. Um, and so all my friends would say, you should be a trainer. And so I'd become a personal trainer. I love that job. It's got meaning. It's got fulfillment. It's got all the good, you know, all the good stuff to it that like now I, I coach people to connect with. Right. And one of my clients came really good friends with my clients. We would go out on the weekends and she would bring her husband along. And the three of us became really good friends. Mm-hmm. And one day over drinks, um, her husband's name was Sandy. Sandy said, Craig, let me ask you a question. How much money you make? And I told him. And he was taken aback that a trainer in his early 20s could make as much as I was making. Yeah. He goes, that's awesome. How would you like to make four times that? And I said, well, I'm listening. That would catch your attention. And, yeah, it would catch your attention. I said, I'm listening. He goes, I want you to meet a friend of mine. His name is Rick. Rick owns a technology company. And so I end up going for this interview with this you know, guy named Rick, who I knew nothing about other than he owns this company. And during the interview, this is really funny. You know, I had nothing to lose. I've got a good career. I know nothing about this guy or his company. He says, Rick says, you know, I hear you're a friend of Sandy. Why don't you tell me about yourself? I said, well, I'm going to, you know, share a couple things with you that I think are really important. Number one, I know you do something in technology. And I don't know anything about technology. I can barely turn on my own laptop. I'm completely in (laughs) depth. And he's kind of like laughing. And I go, number two, I'm extremely intelligent. I'll work my ass off for you. And he just leans back in his chair, gets a big smile on his face, and he goes, you're fired. <laughs> and that's how I ended up in the corporate world. I started at the bottom of the company, and this is important. Which is funny, though, Craig, because, you know, when, they, when, you're, when you're talking to people about going in and, and being in an interview setting, one of the things, one of the big things is to be memorable. And obviously, you caught his attention. He probably had never had anybody say that to him before. He probably didn't. I, looking back, when I walked out of there, really quickly, when I walked out of there, I was like, did I just say I'm going to work my ass off for him? Did I curse in an interview? And he liked that. Yeah, like, yeah, I was like, what was I thinking? And I said, well, it worked. But I started at the bottom. And this actually informs my later crime. Starting at the bottom and getting assigned to the number one sales guy in the company uh, was amazing. Um, not because he was the number one guy in the company, but because he was really generous with his wisdom mm-hmm. and how he got to be number one. Yeah. And we made an incredible team. But starting at the bottom allowed me to learn all of the systems and processes of not only our company, but our partner company, Cisco Systems. Wow. I learned everything inside and out. And I was able to do a lot of things 
that the people that I was supporting, you know, the senior enterprise account manager, that they didn't know how to do. And together, because of that, we made a really incredible team. You know, we made a really powerful team and I got very embedded in our client base. You know, I would, you know, I was one of the only, I was an inside sales account manager, which means you're supposed to be inside. I would go to the client's um, location and they would set a cube up for me and I would work there during the day and hang out. I got to know them. Well, the guy that I was supporting, he decided that he wanted a new challenge, wanted a different industry. So he left. So the number one guy is gone, giant vacuum in the company. I'd been there about four years at this point. There's only one person that could fill that role. So I immediately got skyrocketed up. My base salary tripled. I get in commission, car allowance, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the expense account for a sales guy, all of those things overnight. Yeah. Wow. All of those things overnight. What was was going through your head at that time, being that happening as it happened? It was what I was striving for. So I was really proud. I was really happy. And there was kind of this, you know, I was happy, but it was also this, um, this trap that so many of us fall into. Mm-hmm. When I get this promotion, then I'll be happy. Yep. You know, and I was, I was happy. When you get that then car, be, then you'll be happy. When you get that house, then you'll be happy. Exactly. And, and so the money starts coming in and I go and lease, you know, the BMW. When I get that car, to your point, when I get that car, then I'll be happy. When I buy that Panerai watch, then I'll be happy. You know, it was all of those, all of those things. And I kept falling into that over and over again. And that feeling of, you nailed it, imposter, it never, that never really left me. The sense of not being worthy of that success, even though I earned it. Sure. You know, I knew I was there four years, but it didn't matter. I didn't see that. Yeah. And the feeling of not being enough and realizing now I could buy all of these things that I believe we've really been conditioned to believe that they're going to make us happy, that they're going to make us who we need to be to be someone in society. You know, all of a sudden I got this gaping inadequacy, but now I can start filling it sure. with things. And so that became, I think you might know, I mean, it becomes a very addictive, sure. you know, lifestyle. Sure. It's wickedly intoxicating yeah. to be able to, you know, pop into, I lived in Connecticut, to pop into a jewelry store on Greenwich Avenue in Greenwich and, you know, say, ooh, I want that watch mm-hmm. and not even bat an eye at it. It's very intoxicating getting on the VIP list in some of those restaurants in Greenwich. Again, very intoxicating, and it became an identity. It became yeah, who became I your was identity who, that this is who you were. Yeah, this is who I am. I am my job. I am my salary. I am my ability to purchase things and my things themselves. That was who I was, and that's not a great place to be. Well, and, and I think I think you might have said this, and it might have been in your TED talk that you're trying to fill a glass that had a crack in it, and so it was impossible to fill it all the way up. I was. That's exactly right. I was pouring all of these things into a broken glass. They were just coming out the other end, and I was I was too blind mm-hmm. to see the futility of my actions. I just couldn't. I was too close to it. And, you know, the interesting thing and why it's addictive is, you know, running that, you know, the platinum card, running that for a watch, 
um, comes a little dopamine rush. Mm-hmm. You know, it's got that little little shot, that little rush, and it feels so good. So now the brain starts associating when I buy this, when I get that reservation at this restaurant, when I do that, I'm going to feel good. But those dopamine shots are so short term. Yeah. They are not long term. They fade quick highs, fade quickly. And next thing you know, like I, I, um, I have something that I call the, uh, the golden treadmill. And I was on the golden treadmill, sprinting furiously, trying to catch the horizon. <laughs> and we all know how that's silly that actually is. Thank you. Analogy. And that's, and that's what I was doing. And I, you know, I kept running and I kept on turning up the speed and turning up the incline because I was getting those rewards because it felt good, you know, but they fade and you got to keep running, man, that finish line. It doesn't, it's not stationary. It's a moving target. Okay. So this kind of leads us into Craig, how you got into your nightmare because you were running that treadmill, the golden treadmill and you were still reaching. And I'm assuming that you thought, I could do this and maybe take a shortcut or so a, co- so a couple of things you're, you're like, you're, you're right there. I'm going to fill in. I'm going to fill in a couple of the gaps. Okay. I had started dating somebody um, who I really like pursued for quite a long time, started um, dating and I immediately showed her the lifestyle immediately brought her in. Right. And I set the bar really, really high. And I put her so high on a pedestal that I had to maintain that lifestyle because heaven forbid, um, she saw that I was less than, you know, I had presented this front, which quite honestly was a little bit of a facade because yes, I was a successful individual, but I had used, I never lied, but I used semantics and I used language to almost over inflate my success. And then between that and showing her this lifestyle of walking up and down Greenwich Avenue and buying her the Jimmy Choo's and the Christian Louis Vuitton, you know, doing all those things, I had set that bar and was terrified of being seen as anything as less than. Well, a couple of interesting things started happening. Number one, the products I was selling were becoming more commoditized. So the margins were getting razor thin on all of my deals. I get paid on the margin. And my commission checks start falling. Well, number two, here I am walking up and down Greenwich Avenue, buying those Jimmy Choo's and those Christian Louis Vuitton. Not on the weekend. I'm doing it during the week. Yeah. When I should have been working. Yeah. When I should have been servicing. I dealt with some of the largest financial institutions in the world. These are demanding clients that expect you to be there. And I'm sitting here jerking around getting drunk on a Wednesday, you know, champagne lunches, going to Saks Fifth Avenue, having the time of my life. So take a guess, my paycheck starts shrinking. Well, now, you know, like we had just spoken about, this identity that I have created is being wickedly threatened. And I've got a massive problem and I've got to figure out how to solve it. I got to figure out how to solve it very quickly. Well, remember I said I started at the bottom of the company and I knew the system's inside and out. Mm-hmm. When I started thinking about how can I fix this problem? I knew Cisco's warranty policy inside and out. And I started thinking about, well, I know that almost better than anybody. How can I put that to my advantage? You know, and the, the interesting thing is, 
I could have very easily had the conversation. She, the girl I was dating, ended up, I ended up marrying her. She became my wife. Um, I could have had that conversation saying, I can't do it anymore. I can't do it. And I actually am not enjoying it anymore. It's too much. This isn't what I want to do. This isn't in alignment with who I am. I want to write a screenplay. I want to invent something. I want to start my own business. Right. I want to do these things. But I was too afraid to be seen as less than. And I saw only kind of, in a sense, very much tunnel vision, where there was only one way out. And I knew that I could exploit Cisco's warranty policy to solve my problem. And that's the road I started going down. How long did that happen? I think it was about a year or so, but until the gig was up. The fraud lasted for 10 and a half months. Okay. It lasted for 10 and a half months. And, you know, I think something really interesting about the fraud, it took me months to put this thing together. You know, I look like, um, I look like Russell Crowe in a beautiful mind. You know, he had like posted notes <laughs> yeah, all written all place. over the yeah. place. You know, I wasn't quite that bad, but I mean, I, my journals were filled with my scribbles trying to put this together, post-it notes everywhere. Uh, and the day after about four months of, of putting this together, the day I was going to initiate the fraud, I was working from home before everybody was forced to work from home. Yeah. So I was a sales guy, I could do that. And I'm sitting at the dining room table and I'm hovering my finger over the mouse to hit the send button to initiate the fraud. And I'll never forget this. My finger wouldn't go down. It just wouldn't depress. And my heart was sitting there going, stop, don't do this. This is not the way for you. It was imploring me not to make this choice. And I lifted my finger away from the mouth a little bit. I had that pause, I had that second where I was like, okay, you know, this isn't, this isn't the way for me. And I thought about having that honest and frank conversation, A, with myself, mm -hmm. that I can't keep up with what I'm doing, and with my wife, and even maybe with my family. Yeah. And that friggin' terror and fear of being seen as less than kicked in. And I start thinking a little bit of excitement that I found a treasure map that nobody else knows about. And this is going to work out great. And that finger went down, hit the other send button. And damned if that fraud didn't like, it worked like a charm the first time. And then said, wow, this thing works so well. How can I scale it? How can I make it bigger? How can I make it better? How can I go deeper? And it just, it took on life of its own. Wow. So walk us through the, when the nightmare happened to you and they come knocking on the door and how's your world changed and what are you thinking? So this is a little bit different than I think a lot of the, the knocking on the door. So I had started a brand new job. Our oh. biggest competitor had wooed me away with a nice pay package. Um, my old employer was not treating the senior guys um, as well. They were kind of, you know, they, they wanted us out. So they weren't treating us well. So our biggest competitor comes along with this great pay package and I knew people had already gone there. And they're like, they're treating us really well. A lot of respect. So this is great. So I'd stopped my fraud. So I'd stopped the fraud. I'm two weeks into this brand new job. I drove from Connecticut down to Manhattan. Our office was um, right next door to Madison Square Garden. Mm -hmm. I take the elevator up 37 floors. I'm setting up my desk for the day. Like we would all do. You know, I put my laptop down. I put my notebook down. Put my pen down. And I grab my phone. 
and I look at it and I notice there's a um, uh, missed call and a voicemail. And I thought that's so weird. He was calling me on Tuesday at 8.45 in the morning. Mm. But I did what we would all do. I put the phone to my ear and this is what I heard. Mr. Stanlon, this is Special Agent McTiernan with the FBI. We are at your residence and have a warrant for your arrest. You need to call us and come home immediately or we will issue a warrant with the federal marshals. Wow. That was my knock on the door. That takes your breath away. What, uh, what, what are you thinking in your mind at that moment? Well, you, you nailed it. It was like all oxygen in the room was sucked out. I was having difficulty breathing. My heart and stomach fell to 37 floors that I had just come on. Um, I, I, it, was, it was nausea. It was terror. It was panic. And amid all of that, my heart spoke again, and it said, I told you so. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. You know, and, and now it was a question of, you know, it's 8.45 in the morning, the office is half full. I don't remember everybody's name. Um, how do I explain to them that I'm leaving for the day when I only just got here? And so ridiculous. Um, I'm kind of curious if you had any of these experiences, like the crazy things that go through your mind when you're going through such a traumatic event. I started thinking, I was like, everybody knows I'm wanted by the FBI. That voicemail was broadcast over the PA system. I had no idea if the office even had a PA system, but it was like, everybody heard that. Everybody knows they're going to want it. Like, right? Yeah. It, you know, I thought there was a neon sign like pointing at me saying wanted. Um, but I, I walked out of there. I told them I'd forgotten about a client meeting. Nobody cared anyway. And I made that long drive home into the unknown. How long did this last for you once the, once they had, you know, confronted you with that they had you and, and discovered this, how long did you live through this before you reached your plea agreement? Mine was, and I'm really fortunate with this. Mine was one of the fastest that I've ever heard. So I'll even like um, shortcut the question in a sense. I went from arrest to reporting in about 10 and a half months. Well, that's almost unheard of. That's, I mean, it was, it was insane. So I was arrested on October 1st. Mine was six years, I, Craig. I, <laughs> Yours is 10 and a half I, months. It, it's unbelievable. I went uh, I was away with somebody who I believe was just over eight years. Yeah. Um, I think it's just so, I feel so terribly for you guys because of the level of uncertainty. Yeah. And, you know, I got to imagine that life almost feels kind of normal, you know, after like year three or whatever it may yeah. be, but you're doing your thing, you're working, you're hanging out with family, you're doing your stuff. And then maybe there's those moments where you're like, damn, I've got this cloud over me. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, I can't even imagine that. So I was, I was really fortunate. And I think in part, because mine was a one man show. It was really cut and dry. Yeah. Um, the FBI agent who arrested me, actually thanked me for keeping the most meticulous spreadsheets he had ever seen <laughs> in his 20 plus year career that made his job really easy, easy. to follow. Right. Okay. <laughs> easy, easy to follow. Everything was there. Um, you know, I also think it was in a sense, a testament to Cisco, a giant technology company yeah. having all of their ducks in a row as well. You know, it was very easy for them to pull all the data, you know, and then I've got corroborating spreadsheets. So with your, I think that was, with these things that happen in that time period, you know, you've got your wife, uh, you've got your family. How does all that 
stay together or, or unravel? The marriage, the day of the arrest, the marriage was unraveling because really, unfortunately, she received the knock on the door. Mm. They got there about 830 in the morning. Um, also very fortunate because I know a lot of people get the, you know, the 530 wake sure. up call. Yeah. They came at about 830 and, you know, she opened the door. She said there was probably about 15 agents, you know, with the pistols, the shotguns, the assault rifles all pointed at her Scared head and face. You know, executing the search warrant. She has no idea what's going on. Um, so that was unto itself, let alone all the lies that I had committed over that 10 and a half month period of committing the fraud. You know, that was the beginning of the unraveling. Mm -hmm. My family, um, on the other hand, were obviously very shocked. You know, they were, they were shocked, saddened, um, disappointed, mm -hmm. you know, all of those things that they rallied. To That's my great. family's credit, they absolutely, absolutely rallied behind both of us um, at the time. But it was, you know, I have to say, I think that that 10 and a half months between getting arrested and actually going away was some of the worst time that I had in this because of the level of uncertainty. You know, because one of your previous guests, good friend of mine, amazing podcast episode, by the way, Jeff Brandt runs the white collar support group. <clears throat> right. um, I fortunately, one of my neighbors read about my story in the paper and introduced me to Jeff. And that's how we got connected. But prior to being connected with him, my pretrial probation officer was trying to be nice. And she told me, do not Google prison. It's going to scare the hell out of you. Stay off the internet. Don't look at it at all. So I did that. I didn't know that there was such thing as a federal prison camp. I didn't know there were different levels of security. I had no idea. So until I met Jeff, I actually thought I was going to the prison that we see in Oz. Yeah. And like I said earlier, I'm five four at the time when I was arrested, I was 140 pounds, so I'm not a big I'm not a big guy. It's like I'm gonna get raped and beaten every single day. Mm -hmm. If I go to prison, that's what's gonna happen to me. There's it's you know, like inevitable was my belief. Mm -hmm. So I spent that time up until meeting Jeff when he explained the different levels and I'm not going to Oz. You know, I just had that that cloud hanging over me. And then Jeff helped with that then I knew that the marriage was unraveling. So I got that cloud over me, the cloud that we all experience. What am I going to do for work? What am I going to do for a career? Where am I going to live? I can't afford the house anymore. I mean, all, all of the, all those things. And I'm sure I'm guessing you expand. I want to assume, but you can tell me yes or no. But I think this justice journey is one of a, the bottom falls out when you get that knock on the door, whether it's figurative or literal, you know, the, the bottom falls out and you fall. And then you kind of feel like you might hit a little bit of terra firma, firma, you know, and you're like, okay, all right. Kind of getting used to your new surroundings. And then something else happens and the bottom falls out again. Yeah. And it's just like this constant falling, you know, and that's definitely a huge part of my experience with just that constant falling until eventually I hit bottom. Yeah, and I, I, I've explained it before too, Craig, where it almost feels like somebody puts you in a room, the bottom falls out, it's dark, and you keep grabbing the edges, and the edges keep moving further away. You just can't grab anything because you're in a fall. And you do hit a rock bottom. You do hit a rock bottom. And, and um, you know, we, we talked about this before. 
you know, we got on because your, your TED talk is a lot about that whole rock bottom moment. But before we get into that, I'm, what do you, are you, when you go and get to where you're going to the prison, uh, do you have like anything going? Cause you've talked to Jeff, Jeff Grant. Are you thinking strategies of how you're going in? Or are you just, I'm here. I want to get it over with. I'll figure it out. Jeff had given me a couple of things that he had done, you know, going in. He had a um, really cool thing that he did where he was going to, in a sense, you know, walk across the country. But he was going to track. Very, it was very cool because I, I think I did walk across the country and back. I just didn't do it the map way that Jeff did it. <laughs> how, I mean, how cool is that? I yeah. love that technique. I'm in Nashville you know, today. So gave- I'm in wherever today. I'm in Oklahoma, wherever. Yeah. So cool. Um, and I love that, but I didn't do that. It was more. I was like, okay, there are going to be things I can do. Uh, and I was a personal trainer. Once people found that out, you know, I was immediately, they I had did. a full client roster. Absolutely. I had a full client roster, you know, um, felt really bad for the other guys that were trainers there. Cause I actually, I could charge double what they were charging. <laughs> Cause I was actually a trainer. The real deal. <laughs> I was the real deal. And so, you know, I started training um, I worked in the kitchen, mm-hmm. which was really good because I had access to to food, and it was one of the, you know, one of the few jobs where you actually have to work. Yeah. And a lot of people, you know, wanted those, you know, like just show up jobs where you don't do anything. Um, I really didn't want that. I wanted something that would help pass the time. I think that, I felt like I, I, I was that's being a good productive. point. I think that's a good point too, Craig, because I, I had a, I had a, you know, I worked in the food warehouse, and and uh, it really did. I mean, I like I learned how to do. I uh, got forklift certified. I did a lot of things that I would never thought I'd been able to do, but it did eat up time, and that was one of the bigger things that I was concerned about. Was like, how am I going to eat up all this time and not just sit around and think, oh my god, I'm in prison. That was, I mean, right? It's prison is, you know the the days are the days are slow, the weeks are fast, right? And it's just a question of coming up with that routine. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I knew Jeff said, get a routine. Mm-hmm. So I was, I'm, I'm a routine guy anyway. So it was just really finding that routine, giving myself a little bit of that room to do some of the things that I had said I always wanted to do before I went into prison, like meditate. You know, I mean, it gave me the, I always said, I don't have enough time. Well, we all know in prison, you got plenty of time. So I started meditating and diving into that world, journaling, practicing gratitude you know, doing those, those different things to try to make sense of why I made the choices I made and why I sacrificed so much for so little, you know, really. And a lot of it was a lot of berating myself, a lot of um, just, you know, beating myself over the head for being, you know, so foolish. Well, and your nickname was Smiley. And that wasn't what was going on inside your you're inside your, your mind at that time. Not even, not even a little bit. So, you know, once I realized that I was in a safe place, I went to Otisville federal prison, you know, I think in 2009 or 2011, way back when um, Forbes named it like one of the 10 best prisons you could go to or something like that. You know, so I was, I knew I was safe, really grateful for that. Your show intro nails it. It's the mental prison. And I was in the mental prison of shame because my heart spoke when I was sitting at that dining room table and my finger hovered over that mouse button and said, stop, don't do this. This is not the way. 
Well, there's more to that than just that one instance. Because my fraud lasted for 10 and a half months and because it was very transactional, it required thousands of choices to maintain it over that duration. Each, it's not an exaggeration, each and every one of those choices was made in the face of my heart saying, stop, don't do this. This is not the way. Mm. And I ignored that voice over and over again. And the shame of doing that, of plowing forward and in the face of so many red flags and the damage I had done to my marriage and to my family, and even, you know, felt it with society, that shame was so all consuming. Mm. And it came to, it came to a real head on December 22nd, uh, 2014. My wife was coming for a visit three days before Christmas. And I knew something was up. I knew something was in the air. I could, feel it in her emails. I could feel it in her voice. You know, it was like the sort of Damocles was hanging over my head by that thread. And we sit down, we squeeze in because the visiting room is jammed, you know, like I said, three days before Christmas. And I kind of start digging. She doesn't want to, she doesn't want to really talk about it, but I keep digging because I know it's there. And she just through tear filled eyes said, I'm leaving you. Mm. And that was when that sword was cut. And it came crashing down, and that was really the that I wouldn't even say was rock bottom, but that was where the shame truly enveloped me, and then brought me to a very terrifying place. Well, let's talk about it because it's one of the most powerful things you talk about in your TED talk. It was so. Like I said, I started meditating in prison. And so one day during uh, one of my meditations, my brain shows me, shows me a short film of what my own suicide would look like. Mm. And it was wickedly graphic. It was as if the perspective was as if I was sitting in a movie theater and I was watching the stage. And this character comes in from stage blasting. He walks in, he's wearing a black hood over his head. And I knew it was me because I could feel the, the resignation in that, in that individual's shoulders. And so I sit down in this chair in one of the basements of one of the homes that I owned, kind of dirty basement, old house, and the chair's a little rickety. And I sit down, and before I know it, I reach under the chair, and I pull out a pistol. And I put the pistol in my mouth through the mask, and I pull the trigger. And my brains go all up against the wall behind me, almost very scary enough, similar to the background behind me. And I, I see this when I'm meditating, and it scares the absolute hell out of me. And I was so disturbed by it, how crystal clear it was and how real it was. And so I waved it off, right? I just was like, well, no, no, I don't want to think about that. Totally strange. I go about my day. I go to the kitchen. I'm making lunch. I'm making dinner. I'm doing my thing. And I sit down the next day for meditation. And that short film comes back. And so I wave it off again, but then it comes back. And then I finish that meditation. I go about my day, same thing, and it goes away. But eventually that short film of my own suicide played for every second of every day for four months straight. It was on a perpetual loop, and it was like it was digging neural pathways into my brain to the point where I could feel my feet actually hitting the concrete. I could feel the feet underneath me. I could feel the weight of the gun in my hands. I could actually 
it's all you would think about. It's all I would think about. It just kept playing it. And even now, I, I have a, it's challenging for me to share this story. I can taste the linen. It was a linen hood that I was wearing, that black hood. I can taste it. And I can feel the weight of, and the temperature of the gun in my mouth. And I can actually feel the, the bullet leaving my head. It became so raw, so visceral, so real that I would go to bed at night begging for the hand of death to kill me in my sleep. And I would wake up disappointed at the light of a new day. Mm. And that's when I began uh, how I was going to kill myself, to plan how I'd kill myself. And there's nobody you can talk to, Craig, in prison about that, because if you tell anyone that, you're going to the hole. They're going to evaluate and, you, and, and you're not going to stay in general population until they decide if you aren't suicidal. And that scared the hell out of me because here I am at rock bottom with the man who was responsible for all of it. And I hated that man. Mm -hmm. I despised that man. The idea of being locked in solitary with that individual was, was not going to happen. So I bottled it up and I smiled and pretended everything was okay. And I started thinking, can I, can I hang myself in the woods? Can I hang myself in the gym? You know, what options do I have? to take my own life because I've got to make this stop. It was driving me insane. And I'll never forget it. It was a Wednesday afternoon. I get an email from my best friend of over 30 years. His name is Sean. It says only one thing. It's a question. I said, hey, man, can I come for a visit this weekend? And I thought the visiting room is not monitored. Sean has been my best friend for over 30 years. I've shared everything with him. Yes, you can come for a visit. It seems to take forever for a Saturday to come around. And finally does. I watch him park his truck, make a long walk up the hill, comes into the visiting room, and we hug. And that's, that hug alone had so much power to it because there's no touch is so rare yeah. in prison. You know, we'd fist bump each other and stuff like that, but there's no real meaningful touch. So even that hug was a really special moment. Sean buys some food from the vending machine because, as you know, I can't actually touch money because nope. sure that means I'd be planning. I'd be planning an escape, so I got to say like eight twelve and C twenty seven, right? So we get our food and we sit down, and I cannot tell you, Brent, how excited I am to to share with Sean that things are not good, that I need help, that I am planning how I'm going to take my own life. It was like such a buildup of excitement. I was like, I was a club soda bottle just walking around getting shaken. And now I was actually going to be able to twist the cap off. And I opened my mouth to speak. And before I can say a word, the guy cuts me off. He starts talking. He's getting a divorce. He's got work issues. He's got money issues. There's a sadness in Sean's eyes and in his voice and her 30 plus years of friendship. I've never seen or heard. And You know, if October 1st, 2013, the day the FBI called me and arrested me was the day my life changed, this moment was the second day my life changed because it was at that moment that I realized that I had worth outside of all the things that I had thought had always made me worthy. I was not my cars. I was not my watches. I was not my job title. I was a friend and nothing more. Sean could have literally walked like, a hundred feet to his brother's house because they live, they literally live like a hundred feet away and they're really tight. 
to share this with him. Instead, he chose to drive two hours to come to federal prison, sure, not even yeah. a fun place to visit, <laughs> because he needed me. He needed his friend. And that was the day my life completely turned around because I realized I had value and worth That's outside of everything. Really powerful. Really it was. Powerful. And, you know, I think one of the most amazing parts about that story is I never told Sean um, all the, the terrible thoughts I was having. I never shared with him that I was planning how to kill myself that day. I didn't share with him at all. He had no idea because I didn't have to. Just that alone, I was living in an absolute sea of darkness, and Sean's visit was just that pinpoint of light, and that's sometimes all that we need. That's what you needed. Yeah. See your own value. Yeah. Yeah. So it was funny. That night, you know, I went I went to sleep for the first time in like four plus months, not begging for the hand of death to kill me. Um, and I woke up the next morning. It was not rainbows and unicorns because I was still in prison. <laughs> right. Um, but I wasn't, I wasn't disappointed at, at the light of a new day. And that's, that's when I realized I have an opportunity to transform this situation into something meaningful. And it, it actually took on a weight of almost like an obligation mm-hmm. where I am obligated, I'm duty bound, if you will, to transform this story into something meaningful for someone else. Craig, did you, and I remember you told me you had someone that was like a mentor to you in there. And he, when you were talking back and forth, he put his arm around you and told you that, well, I'll let you tell the story, but I thought it was, and, and, and it is interesting how there, for me, the, 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 one of the most surprising things about prison is I found that there was really um, nice, good people in prison, you know, it was when, like, I, I was like you, Greg, when I was standing at the gates of Leavenworth, I thought, okay, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to get raped and then I'm going to get beaten up. Maybe I get beaten up first and then I get raped and then I get killed. You know, the, 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 the I don't know how, what order that, but it was, it was bad. And, and what the most surprising thing was, is the very first hour of being there, people were trying to help me. And, and it was, it really, you know, uh, in my mind, you know, for me, it's it's almost life changing. Of I never judge a book by its cover. I always want to hear the story. I it's one of the greatest gifts that I was given from this experience is perspective, and one of the aspects of that perspective is I'm human, so I still judge, but I try to catch myself when I do. Yep. You know, I try to catch myself when I do and say like. What's the story I'm making up about this individual? <laughs> exactly, right. Because on, without the facts, it's all stories. Exactly. And we got to live in the facts, not the story. And so my, my, to your point, when I, I had to check in at the medium security facility adjacent to the camp, which is, I think, fairly common. Yep. And, you know, when I walk out of the medium facility, it's hysterical. They're like, um, see that rock over there? I'm like, yeah. Walk up to that rock, take a right, you'll be at the camp, you'll be fine. I looked at him like, yeah, I'm not going anywhere. He goes, stay on the path, you won't get shot. It's like, great. <laughs> so I walk up, you know, and I come to the camp. And what you said nailed it. Some of the nicest, most genuine people within a few minutes of my arrival. Right. It's like, can we get you? Here are your shower shoes. Here are, you know, your basic necessities. Yep. And one of the people that was responsible for that was one of my mentors. And his name was Ed. 
Well, Ed, when I actually was getting my, when I got my halfway house date, and I was really excited for that because I wanted to go to the halfway house because I wanted that taste of freedom. I wanted to, you know, get back into kind of the real world. So I get my date, which we don't know. It's kind of like a crapshoot. All of a sudden, like, hey, Stanley, you got your date. And it's such and such. And that's like, okay, cool. And word spreads. I'm sure you know, word spreads like crazy. Smiley's going to be leaving on, you know, the 14th or whatever day it was. And so I'm like, this is so great. This is so awesome. This is, holy crap, I'm going back into the real world. Um, I don't have a job fully lined up yet. I'm basically homeless. I have, I'm getting divorced. Um, who's going to date a felon? Who's going to hire a felon? Uh, you know, I didn't come out and say this, but I was kind of thinking about it. I was like, I hate being here. Prison sucks, but it's a roof and three squares. Mm-hmm. You know, what am I going to do when I get You're on not the outside? Think about all the obligations of being on the outside. Right. It's, it's, you know, it's all of that stuff disappears for a little bit. And, you know, people do what they do with their time and they choose to, I did all that inner work, but now all of a sudden I've got to go back in the real world. Right. Am I going to be able to do all this inner work? on the outside when I've got a job that, you know, hopefully get that job that takes up X amount of hours. All these fears are coming through my head. The reality of the situation is making itself very clear to me. And Ed and I are walking down the hallway of the educational building at Otisville. And he says, so you got a date. How are you feeling? And I expressed almost everything that I just shared with you. You know, don't have a house, don't have a career. Who's going to date a phone? I have no money. What the hell am I going to do? And he put his arm around me, you know, in a very fatherly manner. And again, that touch is so special. He just looked me in the eyes and says, Craig, you have a blank canvas. You can paint whatever picture you want. And the funny thing is, I had an opportunity to have lunch with an author who I greatly admire, Kamal Ravikant, anybody listening. Check out his books. They were instrumental in rebuilding and reinventing my life after prison. Cannot recommend them enough. I emailed Kamal from the Brooklyn halfway house. And I smuggled, smuggled in iPhone because we weren't allowed to have, you know, phones or cameras or internet access, right? So I emailed him from there explaining a little bit about my story. And he said, you know, you mentioned in the city, like New York City, I'd love to meet up with you. And I said, I would, you know, oh my God, this is amazing. So we ended up having lunch. And I share that story with him about Ed saying you have a blank canvas. And I had already shared with Kamal that I was writing a book. And he looks at me and he goes, Craig, that's the title of your book. And I tilt my head like a confused dog. And I'm like, huh? And he goes, blank canvas. How I, his original subtitle was how I recreated my life after prison. Mm-hmm. He goes, that's your title. That's your subtitle. That's going to get you on CNN. And it was like such a cool moment. I, I I ran with that and I turned recreated into reinvented because I thought that was a more appropriate yeah. name. But that's how the title of the book came. And, you know, I want to. Such a cool story. I want to share some. Thank you so much. You know, I want to share something. As you were, as you were talking earlier, something came to me. We talked about the bottom falling, mm-hmm. right? And you talked about being in that room and mm-hmm. trying to grasp the walls. My analogy, the way I felt it was I was in a, um, in a hole in the earth and I was grasping at roots mm. and the roots just kept coming out. I just couldn't find a firm one until I had bottom. Mm-hmm. But I think, and the platform that you provide for people to share these stories, I'm curious if we all kind of have the same thing. We have that falling, right? But then there's, it's not an overnight thing. There's those steps that go up. 
And Ed saying, you have a blank canvas. You can paint whatever picture you want. That just shifted my entire perspective and gave me opportunity where there was moments ago, like zero hope. That was a step up. Kamal giving me the title for the book because I couldn't for the life of me come up with one. Another step up. So when we look at all of these things and kind of map them out, we can see there's, you know, the steps down and there are the steps up. And I think that's really cool. You have to open up your mind and see it. I know we've only got a few minutes left because you got a hard break to go away. Uh, Craig, what, all these things that you have, you've got, you got a brilliant mind and and, and you're using it to to help people. What do you think is your biggest takeaway through this whole experience of yours? It's going to be really hard to narrow it down to one, but I think for the purpose of, your platform and the amazing message that you are conveying through this podcast is anybody listening, your past cannot define you without your consent. I love that. That's strong. And you're, you. it's, it's think, about choices, right? And that's a choice. It, it's, it's all about choices and you know, I would look, I mean, you and I feel like we could have part two because <laughs> that was, you know, understanding, you know, all the choices that are available to us and, they are. and it's, everything's a choice. Everything is a choice. Craig, if people want to get a hold of you, I know you've got uh, craigstanlin.com. Uh, what, what are the ways should people reach out and find you? You can find me on LinkedIn and Instagram. I'm posting content every day that I hope is of value. You can check out my TED Talk, How I Learned My Greatest Worth in Federal Prison. And Blank Canvas, How I Reinvented My Life After Prison is available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And if you can find it on Barnes and & Noble and, and Amazon, there's also Nightmare Sex Success. So we both got books. Just go there and get them both. Um, get them both. Get them both. Uh, and and f- folks, for people, uh, if whether you listen on Spotify or, or Apple or wherever you listen, uh, go there, leave a review. It puts the it puts the uh, the show on steroids when you do that. I love that when people do that. Hit the follow button too. And uh, if you w- want to know and get to know any more about uh, what I've got going on, it's BrentCassidy.com. T Y not D Y. And. Um, and share the show. If you got anything out of this today, share it, share it, share it. As I used to say uh, to my people when I was writing my emails back and forth from prison, stay strong. I'll do the same. Craig Stanfield, thanks so much for sharing your story today. It's just an awesome story. Thank you so much for having me on. I loved our conversation. And again, acknowledging you for creating this podcast and having a platform for people to share these stories because that's where we connect as humans. And it's so important. So thank you. Thank you, Craig. Nightmare success in and out. See you all later.